Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Fifty years ago, in Berkeley, a restaurant called Chez Panisse opened its doors. It wasn't super buzzy at the time. The chef, Alice Waters, hadn't opened a restaurant before. The night they opened, they had a lot of friends helping out, but they were short on silverware. They served a four-course menu that cost a little less than $4. What made the place important, the reason we're talking about it 50 years later, is that Chez Panisse was one of the first restaurants to champion local, seasonal, sustainable food. It's something you see on menus all the time today, but back in 1971, you just didn't. It's not how people thought about food. Again and again, if you read up on the history of today's sustainable food movement, Alice Waters' name comes up. Alice is also a devoted and uncompromising advocate for changing the way we eat. She cares deeply about how we grow food, what our kids eat at school, and perhaps most importantly, teaching kids how food is made. To celebrate the 50th anniversary of Chez Panisse's opening, we're replaying my interview with Alice Waters from 2019. Let's get into it. Alice Waters, I'm so happy to have you on Bullseye. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you. So I've read that you were a picky eater when you were a kid. What, what are the things that you remember liking to eat? Liking to eat? That's a good question. I guess I really liked the tomatoes and the corn in the summer in New Jersey. Because they, well, I didn't know that the taste really was about growing them in our backyard, but I always wanted sliced tomatoes, corn on the cob, and then my father would cook a steak on the grill. (laughs) And um, I was very, very happy. What do you remember not liking? Pretty much everything I had for dinner. (laughs) (laughs) My mother wasn't very, sadly, wasn't a very good cook. And she'd never learned And then all of a sudden she had this family, and it was a lot of pressure to know what to do. And she relied on on frozen food and, and, you know, fish sticks and (laughs) the like. But she was determined to have us eat something that was healthy Um, and So we didn't have desserts. We had fruit cup out of a can for dessert at night. And But the amazing thing was, back in the 50s, it was always good to eat as much butter and bacon. Those were healthy things for us. And so to cover up the taste of the sort of dry whole wheat bread... I could slather it with butter and put on a couple pieces of bacon. (laughs) And I made myself a bacon sandwich, which I loved. I mean, that's not half bad. I'd eat that. (laughs) Do you remember eating anything as a kid, or maybe, let's say, as a teenager, given that you had 
picky tastes. I mean, like I like to eat all kinds of things and, and I was the same way until I was, until I was a teenager, probably. Um, I feel bad for my, uh, mother and stepmother and father who had to cook for me. Um, but do you remember anything when you were really young that you ate that was a special thing? Well, I talked about it in my memoir, and I would always want to go to New York City and eat at the automat in New York because I could choose what I wanted to have. And at that time, there were people that were behind these little windows that you could see that were making, you know, a grilled cheese sandwich or a, an egg salad sandwich or just cutting into the lemon meringue pie. And I was fascinated by that and, and, and just felt like I had, you know, this special privilege to make that choice which seemed more important than really what it actually tasted like. I think having a sense, a feeling of control is a really important part of children's eating. I mean, I, I see it in my own kids. Well, I can say from 25 years now of the Edible Schoolyard Project in Berkeley, where we've been dealing with uh, a thousand middle school kids, sixth, seventh, and eighth graders, that when they are empowered to cook for themselves, they always want to eat it. And I mean anything. If they grow it and they cook it, they want to eat it. It's kind of amazing. You're seeing the whole process. And so it is that that I think is really transformational. Do you remember when it first occurred to you that you would like to learn to cook in a way that you had not had happen at home? I remember exactly that moment. Um, well, it was after a year of living in France when I was 19. You know, I was supposed to be going to school, but never attended classes. It was always about finding a restaurant, reading the menu, you know, tasting and tasting, you know, oysters right on the coast of Brittany and having them right out of the water. And it was a revelation. Do you remember what the first thing you tried to cook was that was a stretch for you? Well, I came back home, and I was luckily given an Elizabeth David cookbook. And so her recipes were were very straightforward. But I think the most challenging thing that I ever tried to cook was a pâté en croûte, this pâté that was wrapped in a kind of puff pastry and... It was seasoned at that time. I mean, I'd never seen black truffles, and they came in a little can. And I chopped them all up and put them in that pate. But when I accomplished that, I felt so, so proud. I guess that's what I would say. And then I chose just the right wine to drink with it. <laughs> Did you make your own pastry and pate? 
I did. I can't believe I did that. I really don't believe I did that. <laughs> One time when I was like 20, I had picked a bunch of apples from the tree in my mom's backyard and decided to make an apple pie out of them because there was just too many to eat. And um, I made the crust for the pie just by like opening, you know, I don't remember, the joy of cooking or something, <laughs> you know, like just some cookbook that was sitting around. And it came out really well. And... uh that was now probably 15 years ago. I have not attempted to make pastry since <laughs> just because I was so proud that I got it right that one time and I didn't want to break my streak. <laughs> I know how that is. Well, I've never made the pot de hand croute again, <laughs> ever. But it's something that you have to learn by doing. Why did you want to open a restaurant? I wanted to open a restaurant for my friends. I wanted to eat like the French. And truly, I, I was incredibly naive. I just thought, you know, somehow I could do this because I had eaten in these restaurants in France and I wanted it small enough and I only wanted one menu a night just like some of these little places in Paris. And I... I was frustrated that there wasn't a place where I could have those tastes. And I, instead of uh, cooking for my friends and kind of going broke doing it, I thought, well, I'll make a little restaurant and then my friends will come and pay for it. And et voila. <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, it's a lovely thought to think uh, that, in order to avoid going broke cooking, you should open a restaurant, <laughs> which is the top the top way to go broke cooking. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it we went, of course, I think forty thousand dollars in debt in the first six months. I didn't think about money at all. I still don't think about money, and I think I probably hired way too many people. <laughs> We had never had any experience except cooking at home. I mean, Lindsay, who was the pastry chef, I mean, she did the pastries sort of one by one or two by two in a kitchen, little cottage behind Chez Panisse to begin. I mean, she didn't know how to cook, you know, differently. And in a way, that could have been seen as the wrong way, but it turned out to be really the right way because we didn't want to have anything left over after the evening. We didn't want to have to use leftovers the next day. So we would know how many people came and we would just start anew every day. That must have been intense. It was. <laughs> it was really intense when when I burnt the corn soup one time <laughs> and we had to tell people it was roasted corn soup <laughs> <laughs> when when James Beard came to the restaurant you know he said this isn't a real restaurant this is like going into somebody's home this is not a kind of you know, production place. This is, this feels like you're going into somebody's house for dinner. 
And I thought that was the most wonderful compliment because that's exactly what I wanted people to feel. Did he say it in the way that you took it? Just about. I think he did. He wrote a column about it. More Bullseye still to come after the break. From MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for Bullseye and the following message come from Culturel. Culturel wants you to know that an estimated 45 million Americans may have IBS, according to the International Foundation for Gastrointestinal Disorders. Culturel IBS Complete Support is a medical food for the dietary management of IBS. It's designed to relieve symptoms like abdominal pain, bloating, diarrhea, and constipation in a safe, well-tolerated, once-daily dose. Save 20% with promo code RADIO on culturel.com. There are arrowheads in the walls. I'm Ramtin Arablouei. I'm Rand Abdel-Fattah, and we're the hosts of Throughline, NPR's history podcast. And for our special series this month, the best of Throughline. You know, if we carry on as we have been, this is what we might wind up with. Listen now to the Throughline podcast from NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Alice Waters. She and I talked in 2019. Let's get back into it. When I was a kid, my family's shopped at a grocery store that's still in San Francisco called Rainbow Grocery, a natural food store. And the reason was not out of uh, some particular strong preference for, you know, natural foods over uh, processed foods or whatever, but mostly just because it was the only one within walking distance of our house and we didn't have a car. And I remember a lot of great things about that food, but I also remember like, you know, there's like a kind of Fig Newton that you get at the natural food store that where the outside is very intensely dense and difficult to chew. <laughs> <laughs> the fig part's all right. Yes, I know about that. Sort of the health food. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I wondered, I wonder what your relationship was having opened this restaurant in the Bay Area in the early 1970s as the idea of health food with a capital H and F was blossoming in, you know, the Bay Area and L.A. particularly? Well, you have to remember that I was a Francophile. And so even though I had, you know, digested many of of the the values of the kind of the hippie back to the land movement and certainly diet for a small planet had a big influence on me i didn't want that what i thought was unsophisticated you know just throwing all the vegetables together and making some brown rice and serving them like that i wanted to go back into the history of, of gastronomy. I wanted to learn from La Russe Gastronomique. I pored over that book and, and wanted to know what Escoffier was thinking. And I, I really believed in the art of cooking and presentation. 
Over time, as you ran the restaurant, did you get any further from the idea of uh, French food of Francophilia and figure out what was good about either other other foods of the world or simply American food? Absolutely. I feel like I had the good luck to learn from extraordinary people like Edna Lewis. And she opened up a whole world of Southern food to me. She was talking the same language as I was, but with a whole new vocabulary. And it was so uh, inspiring to me. I think of her one time wanting to go to a Southern Foodways conference, and she wanted to have milk and cream out there that was fresh, and she asked if she could bring a cow. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> she wanted to milk the cow. And that is what I'm, I'm looking for, is that the immediacy of uh, the the aliveness of food. My mom had a garden in the shared garden plot in the back of our church. The thing that I remember her growing there was uh, Easter egg radishes because, you know, radishes, radishes aren't the most flavorful food on earth in the best of circumstances. And the, and the flavor that they have is one that's not necessarily uh, the easiest to appreciate if you're seven years old. Um, you know, there's a pretty sharp flavor. But like, hey, if it's seven different colors, I'll eat it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the way it was. Uh, at the beginning of the restaurant, we put the word out that we wanted anything that was grown in people's backyards. We would make a trade for lunch at the restaurant and I'm hoping that that's the kind of response that could happen and that we could really, you know, restart those victory gardens that we had back during World War II and thereby, you know, learning the values the, of, of nourishment and beauty and meaningful work and <laughs> all of those things we've lost in our fast food indoctrination. If you had like a, uh, a half hour broadcast to all Americans, if you were, you know, if you got a, the slot after the state of the union <laughs> or whatever, and you could teach people with no presumption of their cooking skill to cook something at home, what do you think would be a good thing uh, to teach those people to cook? Oh, that's a very serious question. I think it's very hard to communicate through technology about food because it's about smelling and tasting we need to be really in tune so that we can get all the information into our minds through our senses. And, I mean, the first thing that came to mind was pasta pesto. 
because people in general in this country like that dish, and most all children do. And I would ask them to pound it with a mortar and a pestle, you know, with an inexpensive one, like a sarabachi, and pound the garlic and pound the, the basil in. And it's really just simply boiling the water for that. Maybe it's having a little good olive oil and a little Parmesan cheese. But it creates an aroma and a taste that can be unforgettable. I really love mangoes. (laughs) Now, you must live in India, (laughs) or do you live in Mexico? Or maybe, maybe you live in Hawaii. I live in Southern California, where there are there are mangoes grown in Southern Arthur. California. Yeah, I think they're there at the Pasadena High School Farmers Market, and I'll, and I'll buy them when they're there. There's a few different varieties they make, but you know, um, there's a lot of Mexicans and Mexican Americans in my neighborhood who love mangoes, and um, you know, they'll sell those. Uh, what are they called? Atahualpa mangoes, the little yellow ones, um, by the crate on the side of the road and those are mexican mangoes generally sometimes philippine but but generally mexican but i always want to know how they were produced i want to know whether they have herbicides and pesticides i want to know how they were shipped i want to know a lot of detail before i buy them on the side of the road is there anything that, like, it's February, you want to eat it, and you're like, sorry, Fairy Buildings far- Farmer's Market, sorry, Berkeley Bowl, I'm headed to Safeway, <laughs> and I'm going to buy it in a can or off an airplane or whatever is necessary. Uh, no, I'm happy to report that I I don't crave that. I mean, there was one very amusing story that my daughter, Fanny, where she went to, she said she wanted blueberry pancakes. And I said, Fanny, there's, there's no blueberries. And I said, I, I'm sure you can't find them. And she went to, to the, the grocery store, and she came back, and there they were, a little label on, on the blueberries that said organic. And then she just had to tell me the truth. And she had taken a label off of another package (laughs) and fed it. (laughs) She sounds cool. (laughs) We'll wrap up with Alice Waters in just a minute. Did you know she is afraid of sea urchins? I bet you did not know she is afraid of sea urchins. Plenty more gems like that still to come. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Discover. Discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year automatically, with no limit on how much you can earn. It's amazing because of all the places where Discover is accepted. 99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. So, when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash match. 2021 Nielsen Report. Limitations apply. 
manners. Noun. Definition. Rules of etiquette designed not to judge others, but rather to guide ourselves through everyday social situations. Hello, Internet. I'm your husband host, Travis McElroy. And I'm your wife host, Teresa McElroy. Every week on Schmanners, we take a look at a topic that has to do with society or manners. We talk about the history of it. We take a look at how it applies to everyday life. And we take some of your questions. And sometimes we do a biography about a really cool person that had an impact on how we view etiquette. So join us every Friday and listen to Schmanners on MaximumFun.org or wherever podcasts are found. Manners, Schmanners. Get it? Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Alice Waters. She's a lifelong activist who's dedicated her life to advocating for food sustainability and education. She's also the founder of the legendary restaurant Chez Panisse in Berkeley, which just turned 50 years old. She and I talked in 2019. Let's get back into it. I once had the late Jonathan Gold on the show. And he's a really lovely guy and a real hero of Southern California food. He was a writer, for folks who don't know who he was, who was well-known for kind of expanding the palette of restaurant criticism here in Southern California. And he won every award there is. A wonderful writer and and a guy who would, you know, uh, putz around in his pickup truck and go to Reseda and eat you know, some kind of highly herbal Southeast Asian blood sausage, and he'd get exactly what was good about it. And I, one of the things I asked him was like, is there anything that you just don't like eating? Because he ate everything, you know, that was his whole deal. And he says, oh yeah, I don't like eggs. <laughs> and I was like, you don't like eggs? <laughs> like, you're down for these. You're down to eat, you know, the the blood sausages and you're 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 like, well, I'll knock a few balut back, you know, but he's like, uh yeah, I just think eggs are gross and uh I like make them for my kids in the morning and the whole time I think about how gross I think they are. I guess he I guess he hasn't had my egg cooked on a spoon. <laughs> but he's somebody I admire greatly and he educated all of us. So I guess my question to you, Alice, is, you know, in your cooking, you strive to be seasonal, and that means having a relatively expansive palate because, you know, there's you, you can't just pick the six things you like and uh, make those things when those things may or may not pass out of season or might not be good today. Um, so is there anything that you're just like, uh, that's gross? Not really. Not really. I, I'm very hesitant about, about seafood, about shellfish. And I, I guess I know too much. And sea, sea urchins scare me. <laughs> but, <laughs> I think that there's not very much that I wouldn't try. Climate change has been a huge issue in the food world in a thousand different ways. Has it directly affected the food that you make and serve at Chez Panisse? It has. Um, We are incredibly conscious of what's going on in the state of California as it's burning, 
and as it's getting wrong, uh, warm at the wrong time of the year. Because when that happens, fruits ripen a little bit too quickly. And I think sometimes they need, you know, enough time on the vine or on the branch so that they develop their full potential of taste. And we've known, noticed it in the stone fruits in the last couple of years. We notice that we get, you know, even strawberries um, sooner that aren't as flavorful. But it also turns out that our farmers are the ones that are very diverse in what they're growing, and they're, they have cover crops, and, and they're prepared in ways that, that certainly the industrial farmers are not prepared. I grew up lower middle class, sometimes borderline poor, and I grew up taking the subway to the farmer's market in the Civic Center in San Francisco with my mom to buy food. And my experience of farmer's market shopping was defined by, you know, being elbowed out of the way by elderly Vietnamese <laughs> women. Um, and, and I think that food was also cheaper than the food at the supermarket by my house. I haven't found a farmer's market like that here in Southern California where I live. And thinking about it made me wonder if you ever worry that the push to make food more local and seasonal to bring, you know, better tasting produce to people has been co-opted into being a a luxury product. And that it's difficult for it, that it will be difficult for it to transition from being a luxury product into being a practical part of a broad swath of people's lives. I think you're right. It has been given that wrong impression by the fast food industry. They'd like us not to buy our food there at the farmer's market. It's too expensive. It takes too much time. So it really depends on our understanding of cooking, learning about what you need to spend money on and what you don't. But if we have a pantry that is well-stocked, I can cook a meal in 10 minutes. And if we've gone to the farmer's market one time a week and we think about the sequence of meals, if we invite our family and friends to cook with us, we can make food that is that is deeply delicious and nutritious. Well, Alice Waters, I'm so grateful that you took all this time to be on Bullseye. It was uh, it was really fun. Well, <laughs> I'm so I'm so hopeful, and I. So believe that this could be a, as I call it, a delicious revolution. Thank you.
Alice Waters from 2018. Every day she is working to change the way we think about food. You can find out more about her Edible Schoolyard project at edibleschoolyard.org. If you happen to be in the Berkeley area and you want to give Chez Panisse a try, it is still a really special experience 50 years in. And if you're in Los Angeles, she is opening a brand new restaurant inside the Hammer Museum in Westwood. Look for it this fall. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created out of the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California, where just the other night around 9.30 p.m., my recording was interrupted by the signature tinkle of an ice cream truck. And I'm not going to lie, I was not mad at it. I, I, I like to hear an ice cream truck anytime, even at 9.30 at night. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones, senior producer Kevin Ferguson, producer Jesus Ambrosio, production fellows at Maximum Fun are Richard Roby and Valerie Moffat. We get help from Casey O'Brien. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is by The Go Team. Thanks very much to them and to their label Memphis Industries for sharing it. You can keep up with the show on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. We post all our interviews there. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. 